when I was younger, some of that, you know, suffering that I was in when I was, you know, 20, 22, just the, the way that suddenly mindfulness woke me up to the world, to reconnecting with the world, to becoming part of the world in a really different way. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Girl Show. The mission of the show is to spread mindfulness awareness and my job on the show is to invite world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to live a fulfilled life. Today's guest is Dr. Chris Willard. Chris is a psychologist and educational consultant based in Boston, specializing in mindfulness. He has been practicing meditation for 20 years and has led hundreds of workshops around the world with invitations to more than two dozen countries. He currently serves on the board of directors at the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy and is the president of the Mindfulness in Education Network. He has presented at TEDx conferences and his thoughts have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Mindful.org and elsewhere. He is the author of Child's Mind, Growing Up Mindful, Raising Resilience and eight other books for parents, professionals and children along with six sets of cards and therapeutic games available in more than 10 languages. He teaches at Harvard Medical School. On the personal side, he enjoys traveling, hiking, cooking, reading and writing, and being a father. In this episode, Chris discusses his meditation practice over 20 years, mindfulness, mindfulness of children, raising resilience, his passion for travel, and much more. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So yeah, this is great. Yeah, good to good to have you on the show. How would your mom describe what you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> that is, oh my gosh. And like every day I add something new. So, you know, technically I am trained as a clinical psychologist. And so I do do, you know, like a few hours a day I spend, well, nowadays on Zoom, doing Zoom calls, meeting with patients around mental health issues and counseling and stress and relationships and stuff like that. So that's part of what I do. And then in addition to that, I do a lot of writing. So I've written a bunch of books. I do a bunch of blogs, things like that. In addition to that, actually, I, I really enjoy, I, I do a lot of public speaking. So I do a lot of leading workshops kind of all over the place. Um, I'm actually in Texas frequently. I'm in India <laughs> frequently, all over the world. And I have a ton of fun doing that, often around the topic of mindfulness. And that's usually what my books are, mindfulness, self-help, self-improvement, kind of resilience topics like that. I absolutely, I never wanted to do public speaking. I now absolutely love doing that and, and leading workshops and traveling and meeting interesting people. I've actually done you know, I put together a, a global summit about mindfulness a, a year or two ago, talking to people around the world. I, gosh, I just got asked to be an expert witness in a, in a case. And that could be certainly interesting. I'm, I'm probably saying yes to too many different projects, but I do really a lot of different things. <laughs> I do different corporate consulting, working with some really, you know, kind of large global corporations, their HR departments or, or, or development departments. So yeah, I do a lot of different stuff and it keeps me busy. And I'm also a dad and yeah, yeah. So, so I don't even know how to describe it. Starts with psychologist <laughs> and then moves on from there to consultant, author, speaker, all kinds of different things, which I just, yeah, I, I, I feel like the luckiest person in the world career-wise. It's like, oh my gosh, I, I get to do all this cool stuff and, and I even get paid for it, which is even better. So, yeah. <laughs> there are so many things that we can go into details. So I would like to start with your passion. You are passionate about traveling. How did yeah. you get this passion? Oh my gosh. So, you know, when I was, you know, I was young, I got to do a little bit of traveling with my family and then around the country and went to Europe once or twice. And, and then I remember my sister was like studying abroad in Mexico and I, I went to Mexico and visited her and I was like, this is really cool. And then at some point after college, I, I went to Costa Rica with a friend and we, you know, bought tickets and just backpacked around for, I don't know, eight days or something like that. And it's suddenly like this whole world opened up to me. It's like, you can just 
go somewhere and you can just travel there. Like it's, it's, it's amazing. And you can meet people. And if you speak the language even better and you see interesting things and you eat interesting food and you meet interesting people and your mind just opens up. And I was like beyond hooked on travel and, and it's actually, I mean, again, it's amazing. You know, now I get paid to travel for work, but it's like, you know, I, I spent back when I was in graduate school for psychology, I remember a lot of my colleagues were like getting fancy internships or taking extra classes. And I was just like, I'm going to sublet my apartment and buy a plane ticket and just go wherever. And I would just travel in the summers. And, and honestly, you know, I feel like I learned way more about human behavior, way more about psychology of people's human motivations by, you know, taking buses around Vietnam or trains around India or, you know, like walking around markets in Bolivia than I, than I ever could have in any classroom. And I I feel like that was one of the most formative experiences that I've had was traveling and um, just trying to be open to new experiences like that. And uh, yes, I've had so much fun traveling just on my own. And then a lot of fun in the last five or eight years traveling a lot for work too and finding ways to translate mindfulness across cultures, across languages. And, and that, again, I just, I'm like, I can't believe my life. This is crazy. Um, so yeah. We'll come back to mindfulness. in a <laughs> What did you learn specifically from your traveling? You know, I think I learned, you know, I, I grew up kind of sheltered and I think I felt very, like I couldn't quite, I, I guess I learned a lot of like, self-confidence and competence and learning, you know, how to, how to negotiate, you know, for one thing, kind of like in, in a market trying to buy something and haggling over prices, how to deal with people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so some business skills and some kind of like street smarts and, and just feeling this sense of confidence that like, oh, I, you know, I, I can't do anything, but I, I can do a lot of things. Like I can, I can, you know, survive in, you know, like in, in Colombia for a week and a half, having never been there before. And I can get myself, like there's this feeling of competence that I think comes with travel, independent travel. I mean, most of these trips I did on my own, like without um, anybody else with me, kind of like going on a meditation retreat or kind of like going on um, a camping trip, either with friends or on your own. You just feel this different kind of empowerment in your own life. And I think it really it gave me a lot of confidence on the individual level. And then I think also just helped me appreciate and understand both what is universal about the human experience that everywhere you go, people want to, you know, like eat interesting food and meet people and care about their kids and, you know, try to make the world a better place. And yet everywhere we go, everywhere I've been in the world, like that looks a little bit different the food looks different. The, you know, the, the values or the, what gets emphasized in terms of like raising, raising kids and creating safety for our families, like that, that, that may look different or the, or the way that we practice spirituality may look different in different places, but it's, it's part of the entire human experience. And, and I think these are things that really kind of blew my mind in terms of, you know, then the work that I do now, you know, in terms of just understanding how human beings work in different ways. And I think that's been, you know, really eye opening in terms of, you know, my work as a, as a psychologist and as a writer, I spent, I spent all that time I was traveling. I would, I would journal kind of like ferociously every day and would write up every single day of experiences or maybe not every day, but every other day or so. And so I did really a lot of writing and that stuff I've never published. It's probably just on a blog somewhere or you know, on my <laughs> computer, but that, that really taught me how to write. And, and it just gave me confidence I think, in, in talking to people, which has been important in my work doing public speaking. And, and then also, I think confidence with, you know, it takes, you know, traveling for work too, you know, like, it's like, you know, like, sure, I'll get on a plane and fly to Rio and hopefully someone will pick me up and take me to this <laughs> conference. We'll see. But a kind of faith in, in the world, I think, too, that in, in, in more courage in a way that in trusting the world, and I think in a way that a lot of people you know, might, might not. So I feel very lucky that I've had so many good experiences. Yeah. Would you have any advice or suggestion for people who, who feel scared to travel solo? I think, you know, for me, you know, I traveled with that friend who'd never traveled before when we went to Costa Rica 
And then I saw how possible it was. And I started reading a lot about travel and reading a lot about traveling on my own. I wouldn't travel on your own first, but I, I might travel with a friend first or with a group first and then take a little bit of time at the end with yourself and then maybe start doing more on your own. The other thing that happens is that traveling on your own is very, very rarely are you on your own that whole time. And so I would, you know, I'd meet people in hostels where I, I would have something to do. I spent a lot of time when I was younger traveling in Central America because it's an hour and a half from Miami and, you know, it's, it's very inexpensive. And, you know, I'd, I'd take Spanish lessons. So I'd sort of have something to do because it can also be very boring to travel by yourself, <laughs> you know, and, and also to, to learn how to be comfortable being in your own head all day, which can be really uncomfortable for, for some of us. So those things I think are really important. And I'd say start, start small, like start with, you know, a place that feels culturally familiar where the, you know, you're going to be okay with the food. These, these kinds of things have, have goals in mind, but in all these places or most of these places, I, I, I met other travelers, you know, in a hostel or in a class or at a, you know, ancient ruin or, you know, who, who knows what and struck up a conversation and, you know, then spend a few days traveling with them, you know, going from town to town on the bus or, you know, sharing meals with people. And, and, and then, you know, I, I started to feel just much more comfortable with that. And that's a yeah. kind of feeling like a, a trust in the, in the universe. And I also am very careful. I think, you know, a lot of people travel when they're young and, and party all the time. And I am like, in bed by 8 30 and I don't drink or do drugs. And so like I never get mugged or robbed because I'm not even out like after dark particularly. So, you know, I'm, I'm generally in fairly safe, you know, like I, you know, I, I I'm, I'm careful in that way too. Um, do you so. still go to bed by 8 30? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and when I travel now, like for work, it's like, Oh my gosh, I was in Argentina about a year ago for work. And it's one of my favorite places in the world. I go there for work a lot. I've now got friends there. And it's like, you know, they don't even, you know, start their evening. They're like, we're going to have a party for you. I'm like, great. You know, what time can you pick me up? It's like, I'll pick you up around midnight. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, <laughs> party starts then at 1 a.m., you know. <laughs> Like, then it's like they just lit the fire for the barbecue. <laughs> it's like 3 a.m. Finally sit down to eat. I'm like falling asleep in the, you know, in the giant steak that they're giving me. You know, it's just like, but so now I stay up later when I'm there for work. But yeah. What time do you go to bed now? Nowadays, uh, probably around 11. Yeah. Kids go to bed around eight and then chat with my wife a little bit and then do some reading and and go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> what, what does your first 60 to 90 minutes of your morning look like? Well, you know, it's, it's different since I had kids. I've got a, a six-year-old now and a two-year-old now. And, you know, so b before I had kids, it was get up, meditate, go get some exercise, slowly drink my coffee for a few hours, <laughs> maybe do some writing, take a walk, take a bike ride. You know, and then start work. These days, the first 60, 90 minutes are like, you know, kids jump on me, stumble downstairs, make myself a quadruple shot of espresso, try to drink that, try to keep the kids entertained, take take them to school or whatever, and, and then maybe get a little bit of time to myself. But yeah. <laughs> Which brand of espresso do you prefer? So I actually, it's very funny. A friend of mine gave me this extremely nice espresso machine for um, our wedding gift. And we we went through all these different brands of espresso <laughs> trying to find our favorite one. And I feel like a little bit embarrassed being like, you know, what we really like is the like Allegro Espresso Sierra that you just buy at Whole Foods. Like I've tried Blue Bottle. I've tried La Coulombe, like all these very fancy brands. And they're all too, I guess the the term is bright technically, but I, I think of them as too acidic, basically too sour, fruity for me. I, I like this kind of, yeah, not, not very fancy 1099 a pound. Yeah. I would like to ask you about your meditation experience. I, when I was doing some homework on your profile, I discovered that you, you started meditation over 20 years ago. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did you discover meditation 20 years ago? Yeah. You know, I, was in, in college, university, and uh, taking some time off because I was having a hard time. And my parents dragged me 
basically onto this retreat that they were going on with Thich Nhat Hanh, who a lot of folks in the mindfulness community are, are probably familiar with. He was, uh, um, or still is, in fact, a, a teacher. He was very active as a monk in, during the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s, and then was exiled to France and started writing books there and, and did a lot of the work bringing that strain of meditation um, and mindfulness to the, to the Western world in Europe and in North America. And so he'd been teaching for a while at that point, and my parents had discovered his, his work. And uh, so they kind of dragged me onto this retreat and in Vermont. And it, and it was really, this is 1999. It was really just profoundly life-changing for me. I'd been fairly unhappy, doing a lot of drugs, anxious, depressed. And um, suddenly things in the world made sense. I, they started to kind of have more meaning and I started seeing he's really interested in the, the interconnection and interbeing of everything. And, and I started to really see that through the practices that he was teaching and this desire to, you know, really start to connect more deeply with his practices. I really started, you know, I got a couple of his books, started doing the, the, the meditations in those books, which are a lot of visualizations in some of them. John Kabat-Zinn's work also being really influential in general, but, but at that time was one of the only teachers in the West and had a series of, back then it was audio tapes, which is kind of amazing that I would listen to. And, and, and suddenly things in my life started to, started to brighten. I, I feel like color came into my life that had been very black and white or very faded. And, and you know, feeling connected with the earth, feeling connected with other people, feeling connected with nature, feeling connected with a lot of things that mattered to me when I was a child. And, and then really excited about these practices and, and wanting to share them from there. But that, that's kind of how it got started for me. Yeah. What kind of meditation you started with and what kind of meditation you do now? You know, it's, it's evolved over time. So a lot back then was like the, you know, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, visualizations, guided breathing practices, Thich Nhat Hanh stuff coming a lot out of like the, the Vipassana tradition, the Theravada traditions, although technically Thich Nhat Hanh is a, is a Vietnamese Zen teacher, but he's influenced by a lot of the other, I think, kind of teachers from around Southeast Asia. And, and that was really where I got started. And then I kind of graduated from a lot of the visualizations into just the kind of, you know, like focus on your breath, <laughs> mind wanders off, bring it back, notice where it's gone. And then more recently, I'd say probably in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, more of an interest in compassion practices, self-compassion practices, kind of some of that work coming out of like Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. Chris has been a real mentor of mine over the years. And uh, yeah, and then more recently, I think because I have been working with kids and, and with my own kids, back into visualization kind of guided imagery kinds of stuff again. So, you know, kind of visualizing, visualizing oneself as a mountain and kind of cultivating those characteristics of, of stillness and steadiness and confidence or that, that, that kind of thing. So it's, it, it keeps evolving over time. Yeah. So in terms of visualization, should we visualize our outcome or should we visualize hurdles, obstacles? What's the right practice to visualize? You know, I, I think there are so many wonderful practices out there. And for me, the, the visualization is, it works really well as a, as a metaphor for cultivating whatever it is that I'm trying to cultivate in that particular moment. And, and in the work that I do teaching meditations, teaching visualizations, teaching mindfulness, I, I really try to match it to the person. So some people are, are really ready just to like, I'm just going to, grind away and focus on my breath and other people really want to notice where their mind is going and get to know their mind better through a more insight oriented mindfulness kind of practice. Why I like visualizations at the beginning. And I think why I like them now is it really easy if your attention span isn't great. Um, <laughs> so that my attention span recently has been really bad during the, the pandemic and, and having, kids you can probably hear screaming in the background so visualization really i find really helps steady me so yeah yeah do you prefer a specific meditation posture 
I generally just kind of comfortable, upright, kind of tripod posture. Um, <laughs> <Tripod>. um, <laughs> you know, like like knees at knees and butt being the three legs of the the tripod, and that yeah has been yeah for me I think you know particularly like that's often the posture that I when I'm sitting for like a kind of chunk of time, ten minutes twenty minutes that's what I try to adopt, but oftentimes I just find myself like these days just sitting in my my chair at work. <laughs> Dude, you know, or just sitting in bed because I'm a little bit too tired to go and get into the whole whole posture. But that's that's more in the last couple months than you know when I'm when I'm a bit more in regular practice in the regular world. I try to have a bit more of a formal posture like that. Yeah. How do you manage your meditative practice during travel time? Uh, we know that we are not nobody's traveling these days. But when you travel in the past or when you are going to travel in the future, how do you keep up with your meditation practice? I, I in, in different ways. I mean, and sometimes I really don't at all. You know, a few things that I like to do are to try to meditate on airplanes, which is a really interesting practice. I do a lot of travel for work. And I started doing this thing many years ago where it's about 20 minutes from when they say, put your seatbelt back on and, you know, we're going to start our descent. And it's, you know, a good amount of time to meditate. And so I started then just like, okay, now is when I start meditating on the airplane and then it's and then noticing the different bumps the different sounds you know the kind of wondering where i am knowing that i can probably see something out the window is just fun to watch my brain do that and then the landing actually is very interesting if you're someone that struggles with impatience which which i do you probably notice if you're on an airplane, it, it lands and you pull up to the gate and everyone suddenly stands up and like tilts their head sideways and is desperately trying to get out. And it's really interesting practice to try to not do that. If you're not in a rush, to try to just sit in your seat and try to be the last one off the airplane, it's really <laughs> hard. Like every fiber of your it's being is easy. like, get me off this airplane. Oh my gosh, I want to get in line. But you're not going to get off. Like what if you're the, you know, if you if you wait your turn even, you you know, like just till your seat starts to clear, your row starts to clear, like, you know, you're getting off at the same time, but there's all this energy that goes into like, I'm going to stand here and do nothing, even though you don't need to. So it's kind of a funny, funny way to play with our own emotional experience and our own desires and urges and impatience and just notice what that feels like in your body. I, I, I'd just recommend it as a kind of fun, playful way to explore your own experience. And in your book, Raising Resilience, uh, there are 10 principles of raising resilience. And there is one of the practice called patience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Since you're talking about (laughs) patience, is there any other way to cultivate more of patience? Because we all need a lot of patience. I mean, I think think there's a lot. I mean, I, I do think in the world today, patience to me is like a muscle. And um, it gets bigger the more we practice it. And, you know, I think about growing up and I, I was forced to learn patience. Like I, if I wanted to watch my TV show at six o'clock, I had to wait around till six o'clock. Like, you know, nowadays, if my son wants to watch his TV show after dinner, it's like, okay, dinner's over, press play, there you go. And so kids don't have to learn patience or we adults don't have to learn patience. We can watch our show when we want to. We can do things. We get instant gratification, right? In the, in the palm of our hand, you know, with getting our emails or getting whatever it is, or reading the news, not having to wait till you know the morning to go by the newspaper. And so to me, patience really operates like a muscle. And, uh, and we can find ways to try to cultivate it in ourselves a little bit better, I think, like by deliberately waiting, by deliberately not picking up our phone every time we're a little bit bored. In fact, by deliberately not even bringing our phone with us certain places. These kinds of things, I think, are really helpful to strengthening that muscle of patience that I think we could all, we could all really probably use a little bit more of these days. So <laughs> can yeah. meditation help in, in patience? And I, and I, and I'm a big believer that, that meditation like absolutely can. Yeah. I mean, in, in fact, that's a lot of what it's teaching is can I, you know, just watch my thoughts. This is boring. Can I learn how to tolerate this boredom and it is boring. Meditation can be really, really boring. You know, just how it is. <laughs> yeah, meditation is very helpful to develop this patience practice. And I would like to ask you about your TED Talk. In, in your TED Talk, you spoke about 
growing up stress or growing up mindful what was mm-hmm. your childhood like stress or mindful let's say from <laughs> the age of from the age 10 to 15 what was your childhood like it was generally you know like i, I had lovely parents who they never used the word mindfulness but you know i think they were very mindful in many ways you know they i i spent a lot of time outdoors i spent a lot of time you know, doing things that were boring in a sense to cultivate patience to cultivate mindfulness like watching sunsets you know canoeing around ponds taking quiet walks in the forest and and noticing all the sounds all of these things i think were in a sense kind of planting those seeds of of the mindfulness practice that came in a in a more formal way more in my early 20s and so you know that these are you know my my childhood in general was was not super stressful my my adolescence was i went to a pretty rigorous high pressure high school and and things were stressful there but when i was younger it was you know not not super stressful <laughs> for me yeah yeah that's that's good so in your ted talk so let's let's talk about your ted talk could you give us some highlights of that ted talk to our listeners yeah i mean and i and i have a few i've there's two different ones there's the one about mindfulness really you know to me tries to cover like the 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 science of mindfulness you know some of the research on on why stress has created so many challenges especially in our in our young people we know that our young people are under tremendous stress in the last decade or two and and what i see in my travel is that this is actually really true everywhere in the world it's it's not actually just true in in north america the us and that's been creating a lot of mental health issues you know we see these record rates of depression anxiety addiction school avoidance things like that and so you know and that was a little bit of you know my my story into adolescence and beyond and so then the ted talk kind of goes into from there you know what what's the solution and and to me then i i really present mindfulness after talking about some of the ways that that stress really keeps our brain from working at its best you know the the right amount of stress is really helpful without a doubt can motivate us to do things but we have too much stress and suddenly our brain stops working we're unable to focus effectively we actually our, our our perception begins to change when we're under stress we see different shades of colors we hear things at different frequencies our body in fight or flight mode says to crave different kinds of foods we generally interpret most of the stimulus that we're getting as some kind of danger rather than seeing it clearly so we tend to be even more negative than we might be then we react accordingly if everything looks dangerous then we act that way and that's often not safe for us and not safe for the people around us so that these are a few ways that that stress really impacts us and then where mindfulness turns off that stress response actually when we start to practice and even just change our breath rate right blood starts to flow out of the the, the limbic system in the brain starts to flow into the prefrontal cortex where we think things through and see clearly and make good decisions and manage our impulses it flows into the insular cortex where we take other people's perspective and we process our emotions more effectively and so it actually really changes our whole way of being and and doesn't mean that we are not stressed it means that we're actually then more able to handle the stress better than when we're in this more kind of toxic fight or flight toxic stress right. mode That's about yeah. yeah and you mention different breathing exercises in your book the breathing book could you walk us through some of the breathing exercises yeah you know i think you know just just learning and i'm actually reading a fun book about this i'm blanking on the author's name but the way that as we regulate our breath what actually happens is we're we regulate our breath we're also regulating our body and our physiology and that in turns regulating our brain And so by regulating our breath we're actually regulating our impulses, our emotions and our attention in a really different way. And we're regulating our entire nervous system in our body so it's working more effectively. And our brains and our bodies are are more synchronized. And so where we want to be with our breath with the research shows or what I learned from Kelly McGonigal who's a wonderful uh, teacher at Stanford, we want to slow our breath down to somewhere between 4 and 6 breaths in a minute. which is really not very many right i mean what is that yeah. a breath every 10 or 15 seconds 
the other thing we want to do is we want to extend that exhale out a little bit longer. And that's what starts to calm the nervous system down. So it can be as simple as just counting our breath in a different way. Like I born, I can remember where the seven eleven breath, breathing in two, three, four, five, six, seven, and breathing out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And just trying this yourself, breathing in up to seven. Back out to 11. And up to seven. Back out to 11. What this really does is it, is it starts to, you know, again, really shut down that fight or flight response. And so we're able to then, you know, our, and actually the, the blood is really flowing then to different parts of the brain and the body. You're right. able to see more clearly, think more clearly, right, through all of this. And, and so the, the principle is to increase right. our exhale time. And I have heard of three, seven, eight, four, seven, eight. They are different right. practices. Yeah, same, same thing, triangle breath. Yeah, just like a, a variation on that, basically. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, when you go for your public speaking gigs, do you have any specific practice that you do right before you go onto the stage? I used to a lot. These days, I, I usually, if it's a new talk or if I'm nervous, I'm actually going to like, in my notes, I actually will write breathe. So I remember to breathe every paragraph or two. I also really try to like feel my feet on the ground I have this friend that says, if, if anxiety is up in your head, then your feet are the farthest place away from your head. So take a breath in and just press your feet into the ground and just even noticing is the ground warm or cool? Are your feet dry or damp? Right? Are your shoes tight? Are they loose? Just noticing sensations in your feet, taking a few moments to notice that, pressing maybe even gently to the floor and then looking back out to the audience. Or I actually really don't tend to look at the audience. I look beyond the audience. And then once I'm more comfortable, then I start making eye contact sometimes with people in the audience, but I still, it still tends to, tends to make me anxious. And I think actually eye contact in a crowd, I, you know, I, I, I sometimes I, I talk about public speaking a little bit. And if you think about public speaking, if you're like in a big hotel ballroom or something and your back is to the wall with, a hundred or a thousand people looking at you. It's like, if you think about a caveman in a cave or something like that, it's like, you're probably, if your back's to the wall and there's a thousand people looking at you or, or wild animals, like that's probably not going to end well. Like, of course you're going to go into fight or flight. That's probably a danger. <laughs> so that, you know, like you need to, that's an automatic response. It makes sense. So finding a way to, to calm yourself down is, is really important in those situations. Putting word breathe in your notes is a good practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you teach mindfulness skills to your patients what kind of patients do you work with a really big range everywhere from you know anxiety depression you know sometimes people do come in around a specific issue like public speaking you know sometimes around just relationship struggles you know kind of getting through you know over past experiences, maybe traumatic experiences, maybe just, you know, other experiences that shaped them in ways that they're, you know, wanting to kind of undo. So really a broad range. I don't, I don't particularly have a specialty. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm kind of a generalist. Yeah. <laughs> so do you suggest same practice, same mindfulness practice to all of them or you have, it depends on the patient to patient? It's really different patient to patient, I would say. So it's, you know, certainly with some people with, you know, with anxiety, you know, often some more like of a kind of like visualization might be helpful or something sensory. And then maybe I move into breathing after that for people with depression, often try to do something a little bit more movement oriented, you know, different people, different practices. And then depending on people's attention span, I think something like a, a visualization really helps people to focus. 
So, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes lead with that with people that are maybe struggling with, with focus or don't have much experience. So, yeah. Anxiety and depression is very common these days in, I I believe in every culture. So people who are going through depression and you mentioned that you suggest movement practices, what kind of movement exercises or practices can our listeners adopt if somebody is going through any depression? I mean, like, I think like a movement, like mindful walking, I think can be really powerful for people. Even just getting a little bit of exercise is actually one of the best things that people can do with, with depression. In fact, about 20 minutes of light exercise is, 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 is better. Like just taking a walk five times a week is, is better for mild to moderate depression than taking medication. So getting people moving on that front works. And then maybe just really noticing sensations of their feet on the ground or taking a walk around the neighborhood and trying to notice things that they hadn't noticed before. Like every 10 steps, can you notice something you hadn't noticed on yesterday's walk? You know, depression really, it, it, it makes our world smaller. It, it, it shortens our perception. So it's trying to expand people's perception. Oh, there is, you know, take a walk, notice 10 beautiful things on your walk, whether it's the chirping of the birds, the smell of the trees, the beauty of the flowers, you know, two people being kind to each other, you know, whatever it might be, that that then starts to help people's open up their range of perception, which really gets shut down when they're depressed and, and becomes reinforcing of only seeing the negative in the world. So by deliberately asking people to do that in a kind of mindful way, that can, that can be really helpful and powerful for some folks. Is there, would you, would you recommend any online resource or any good book for the people who are struggling with anxiety or depression? I really love the book, the Mindful Path Through Depression by Mark Williams and, and John Teasdale and, oh gosh, I feel terrible I'm blanking on that, Zindel Siegel. And it, it's a really wonderful book. It's also available as an audio book. A lot of times people that are depressed don't have the energy to read a book. So an audio book can be really helpful. So I find that to be a really helpful book. And it's got practices actually by John Kabat-Zinn as part of the audio program with that. I find the work on self-compassion to be very helpful and powerful as well for people. Self-compassion. Uh, this word is everywhere nowadays, <laughs> self-compassion <laughs> yeah. and compassion towards yeah. others. What practices can we have in self-compassion? Because our listeners will think, okay, I got it, self-compassion. What? How can I do this self-compassion? I really mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really learning how to identify our own experiences of suffering in the, in the first part. So naming and noticing, Oh, this is really a lousy, painful moment. And then it's trying to connect that to, you know, usually when we have a, a difficult moment, we tend to feel isolated and alone. And so then the next step is usually like universalizing that realizing like, Oh, everyone actually really struggles. Suffering is fairly universal. We all feel like we're not good enough. We all feel imperfect. And that helps us to feel a little bit kind of back in the human family in some way. And then the third part of most of the practices are usually offering ourselves some kindness. So saying something like, oh, may I let this go? May I learn how to forgive myself? May I just grow from this or learn from this? You know, you know, can I, you know, just be kind to myself? And a lot of the practices are kind of have those three elements to them. And, 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 and again, it sounds like actually, I, I, I feel very lucky. I've known Chris Germer for, for many years. He lives just a couple blocks away from me. And um, he's one of the... How do you spell his second name? Germer, G-E-R-M-E-R. He's done a lot of the work in popularizing self-compassion and researching it. Written a number of these books. And I remember like 12 years ago or 15 years ago, he was like, I'm writing a book about self-compassion. And I was like, that's a cool idea. This is what I thought to myself. I thought, that's a cool idea. No one's going to buy that book. And then of course, <laughs> it's like this bestseller and he's obviously done extremely well. And, you know, so is that whole movement. And I think there's something about it that's very powerful that I think I, I had underestimated that people would, you know, be, be vulnerable enough to allow themselves to, to start to explore something like self-compassion. And, and that's really the way he describes it as having those three, three particular elements to it. Do you remember any struggling time or any favorite failure of yours when you were able to come out of that through kindness, self-compassion, through meditation, or any kind of mindfulness practice? Yeah, I mean, really a lot. You know, like when I was younger, you know, I mean, like absolutely, you know, some of that 
you know, suffering that I was in when I was, you know, 20, 22, you know, just the, the way that suddenly mindfulness woke me up to the world, to reconnecting with the world, to becoming part of the world in a really different way. And I think just other, other moments of building confidence, taking small risks. I was a very shy, introverted person until I wrote my first book 10 years ago and the publisher said, okay, now go do public speaking. And I, I had zero interest in doing public speaking, but learning how to regulate my mind and body through my breath and through mindfulness, you know, suddenly actually started to really enjoy public speaking and, and, and I'm pretty good at it. And, um, and, and so it really helped me through that and to build more confidence and just other, other challenges in my life. You know, my, you know, for, for the listeners, we were supposed to record this a week earlier, you know, but my mom had to go to the hospital, just events like that in my life. My mom had had cancer a couple of years ago and, you know, sort of getting through that other, other challenges, parenting, you know, big mistakes I've made, small mistakes I've made, learning how to not ignore them, but to, to get through them with, you know, learning from them and, and growing from them. And I, and I really feel like mindfulness has helped me to be able to do that. And yeah. not beating yourself for any mistake exactly. or any mess up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. You have written so many books. <laughs> what, what does your writing practice look like? How do you write usually? What time do you write? Oh my gosh, this is a question I get a lot. And, it, and it's not a fun answer for most people because it is like my first book I wrote, I was working in the Boston public schools and like doing therapy, like literally in like broom closets and stuff like that. And like, I'd have like 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And I would just like write for 10 minutes and that's still how I write. I write between patients. I write when I get an idea and just write kind of frantically. But I guess one piece of process that actually maybe is is useful actually goes back to travel to kind of bring it full circle <laughs> as we've been talking for a while. You know, when I started, I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger. And then, you know, being a therapist has actually helped me then to, to kind of have a credential to do that. But back when I was doing a lot of traveling and writing when I travel, I just carried a little notebook, like maybe, you know, a little bit bigger than a credit card or something in my pocket. Whenever something random would happen or weird would happen, or I'd have like a phrase come through my head, you know, like, you know, bus rooftop bus ride, you know, like Himalayas or, you know, like crazy interaction with, you know, bicycle rental people or, you know, Valley reminds me of the moon, you know, just some little phrase. And, and then at the end of the day, I'd have maybe five, maybe 30, like kind of like random disjointed ideas, you know, two words to 10 words. And those would all just kind of unfold in my writing, you know, and it would turn into prose that night. And that's still how I write now. I'm working on a book that's got started during the pandemic and and thinking about how do we grow stronger through these things. So it's about resilience and it's about post-traumatic growth. And so I just sort of, you know, observing my own life and observing these interactions and thinking, you know, and I have a little notebook with me and I think, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of like a a recent example, but, you know, noticing, notice, I mean, I kind of just gave it a few minutes ago, like noticing different smells in the air, at different times of day while I'm taking a walk around the neighborhood, you know, just writing them like smells. And then I go back and that becomes a paragraph in the book or conversation with my w- wife about history. My wife happens to be a historian of medicine. So she knows a lot about the history of plagues and pandemics around the world. And then it's like that actually became three paragraphs of the introduction to the book. And so it starts with just like noticing something, writing it down. And then usually that expands kind of into, into, into something larger, kind of like it's, it's rehydrating with, with these other words, this concentrated idea um, then turns into something. If I understand correctly, you use pen and paper to write, not computer. In my notebook, I use, I use pen and paper and then I start typing things up later. Yeah. So you get all those ideas on a notebook and then you elaborate on that idea <laughs> on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you do you use Word doc? What kind of software do you use for it? I go back and forth. I use I use 
for a while, I was using Scrivener, which is actually a really great program if you're a screenwriter. It's a great program if you're writing a dissertation or something with a lot of chapters in it. How do you spell um, that? Scrivener, S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R. Got it. Like Bartleby the Scrivener. And it's really good for organizing a very large project because you can very easily... I write in a very, I'm sort of like, oh, I'll write three pages of chapter 10, and then I'm going to write like a paragraph of chapter two, and then I'm going to like do a, write up the meditations for chapter five. So I've written a very nonlinear way, just with kind of where the where the creative juices are. So it's, it's a really useful program for then being like, okay, what did I say in chapter 10? Okay, now I want to make sure I tie that back to chapter one, and I can very easily navigate that. Whereas I don't, Word may have a feature now that makes it better for navigation between different chapters and sections. But that's what I liked about Scrivener. But but then unfortunately, I didn't like some of the other features of Scrivener and it wasn't all that compatible with Word. So I, I just use Word now, which is kind of lame, but um, <laughs> it works well <laughs> enough. <laughs> and I just have like 20 documents open at the same time. <laughs> Let's jump to your retreat experience. You have been on retreats with Tara Brock, Thich and many other you know, major league people in this mindfulness industry. Mm -hmm. If any of our listener has not attended any retreat, what parameters should they consider before going on to any retreat? Not in the pandemic, after the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am just a believer in if you find a teacher you like, and these days that's pretty easy. You can go to your local meditation center or your local yoga studio in a lot of parts of the world. You know, I know I'm supposed to be virtually in Austin in two weeks and I'm so bummed I can't go. I, I really, I always wanted to go to Austin. But like, I know like my friends in Dallas, it's like the yoga studio. Dallas yoga is like where a lot of the meditation world happens. So you can go somewhere local or you can like go on YouTube and find a cool teacher who you like or go on, you know, like, like sift through Insight Timer or pick up Mindful Magazine or, you know, a place like that and see if you find someone interesting and then who, whose, whose words, whose style just resonates with your life experience, with your humor, resonates with you kind of on a cultural level, on a personal level, and then see if they have a retreat schedule or pick up a book, you know, and it's like, wait, oh my gosh, like this, you know, like, oh my gosh, like Mark Coleman, like I love his books. Wait, he's leading a retreat. That's so cool. Just go on that, you know, like, because, you know, people, especially authors, like that's, you know, sort of like, it's not exactly like being a rock star, but it's like you put out the album is like putting out the book and then you go on tour and you do different events and, you know, so you can, can find you can look by teacher or you can look by uh, retreat center and, and, you know, this very high quality retreat centers like insight meditation society or spirit rock that have wonderful teachers or there's other places like Omega uh, or Kripalu or, you know, uh, I don't know. There's, there's uh, every region of the country has got a few different meditation centers and you can kind of flip through their catalog to see which. Or you which can go to overseas as well. Right, you can go overseas. Yeah. yeah. Where is your personal personal favorite retreat center? You know, I you know, I mean like I love Omega. They've got the most comfortable beds and the best food, you know, and they've got great teachers there. <laughs> you know, IMS is near me in Massachusetts and it's you know, it's it's very nice, it's very simple, it's very stark, it's very New England, but I always like to travel a little bit more and see a different landscape. You know, Spirit Rock is absolutely incredibly gorgeous hikes and hills and mountains and you know on a clear day you can see see the bay you know it kind of kind of depends on on what's going on in my life and how much how much time i'm able to get away i haven't actually been on more than a one-day retreat since my son was born or, or not one that i wasn't leading i guess i'd put it that way <laughs> <laughs> you have mentioned food a couple of times in a conversation what's <laughs> your personal what's your favorite food <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, that's part of why I love travel is because I love food and I love, you know, kind of understanding culture through food. And so I, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly adventurous at this point in my life with, with eating, but the favorite cuisine. Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, I, 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 as I mentioned, like Argentina, I absolutely love the food there. I've been to India a number of times. I absolutely love the food in India, Southeast Asia, ditto, Vietnam, Thailand, Burma, all such good, interesting food. I was in Turkey about a year ago. 
unbelievable food there. I mean, I don't know. Everywhere's got their amazing stuff. I don't even, I don't even know how to pick. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, Chris, it has been an amazing conversation with you. So, okay, before I ask you my last question for this conversation, I want to ask you that what books have you gifted the most apart from your own books? <laughs> I really love... Gosh, let me think. In my life these days, a lot of kids' books are what I'm giving away because I've got, you can probably hear my kids screaming in the background. But there's a really wonderful book called Big Tree Down. That's a great book for kind of ages four to seven. And uh, for grownups, I really, I really always love Sharon Salzberg's work. I think there's a lot of amazing mindfulness teachers out there. I really like the way she puts it into, into writing. She's, she's very skilled. And uh, so her books like Real Happiness is a, is a really wonderful book that I, I've read many times. Happiness. Yeah, yeah. Now she has one called Real Love and Real Happiness at Work. And there's a new one called Real Relationship. I can't remember what it is. I just saw the advertisement for it the other day. But yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I often recommend for people starting out in, in meditation and mindfulness. Awesome, Chris. And do you have any closing thought, any recommendation, suggestion, anything that you want to share for our listeners? You know, just I just want to thank you for having me. You know, if people are interested in, in my work, especially talking with an editor today who was like, you need to stop doing so many things and narrow your focus. Um, but if you want to learn more about me, whether it's like books that I write for three-year-olds, like alphabet books, or whether it's, you know, my expert witness work or whether it's my, you know, consulting for, for large corporations, all of that you can find on my website, drchristopherwillard.com. And you can also learn more and watch some videos. You can also check out my books. You can also on Instagram and Facebook, you can find me. I do like a daily challenge on those places, usually around mindfulness or resilience or positive psychology, like just one daily prompt so this, this month it's been connections, some months it's like a mindful eating prompt every day or a mindful movement prompt every day or something like that. So yeah, big, big range of different things. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much. It was Thank wonderful you. talking to you. Yeah, this was a blast. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again.